0: Uh, If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Jeremiah. We're in a series on the minor prophets. Jeremiah is a major prophet. thought it was fitting for nine-year anniversary to step up. Um, But yeah, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And it says this, it, sound, it might sound familiar to many of you, but it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Uh, let me open just with a quick word of prayer, if we could. Father, I, I want to commit this morning to you, our time together, our relationships, the words that we speak to one another, the state of our heart, Just pray that this would be a sacred time, a sacred place, that you'd be able to speak to us as your children, that we'd be able to hear what it is you'd have uh, us hear, and that we would have a shred of faith, uh, the ability to somehow want to grasp for whatever it is that you'd be calling us to. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm a Cowboys fan, Dallas Cowboys. My well, mom says it was because I moved back to the States when I was six-ish, and uh, so football like was new at like age six for me, and that was uh, the end of the Roger Staubach era, uh, heading into the Danny White kind of era, if you're a Cowboys fan, Tony Dorsett, that kind of thing. But evidently, I was taken by, I think, the concept of Cowboys, the color of the uniforms in like the star or something like that. And quickly became a Cowboys fan. And in those days, when you became a Cowboys fan, like it, it went really, really, really deep. Um, and I've been a Cowboys fan my whole life. So when we moved to Washington, D.C. area, northern Virginia, um, my mom forbade me from wearing, to junior high, forbade me from wearing any Cowboys stuff. Which is hard for me because I had a Cowboys helmet phone, I think, Cowboys like uh, down comforter. I had a Cowboy's pillow, I had a Cowboy's rug, an embroidered thing, Cowboy's hanging on I was, I had a lot of cowboy stuff. Uh, but I wasn't allowed to wear any Cowboy's clothing to school because uh, my mom was afraid I'd get beaten up because that was the Joe Theismann era of the Washington Redskins. And that was when the rivalry was kind of really big. Anyways, that really doesn't have anything to do with anything other than... Uh, lately, the last couple of years, watching the Cowboys, <coughs> if, if you follow football, um, it's really interesting watching Tony Romo, who's hurt right now, but he's been the Cowboys quarterback for a very long time, and this is kind of the new NFL, and so as Tony Romo comes to the line with 15 seconds on the clock or 20 seconds on the, the play clock, he, he starts to go through snap um, counts and stuff like that, and... And it's all to kind of get the defense to show what they're going to do, right? So he's trying to get them to show where the blitz is coming from, what kind of coverage, if it's zone coverage, man coverage, and so then he kind of walks to the line and he starts like yelling out a lot of numbers, you know, number 88, number 64, and he's pointing and his linemen are supposed to figure out where the the blitz is coming from, who's going to block who, and then he goes back and he looks it over and then he starts making hand gestures to his receivers and then he takes a running back and repositions the running back over here for kind of some protection or something like that. And he does all these things, um, a lot of work, right? And then it gets down to like one second on the play clock and they finally snap the ball. And usually it's like a a handoff to a running back that goes for two yards. (laughs) And and I I mean, it's the new NFL, it's, it's complex, everything's like that, but there's all this stuff going on for every play. And, and then it goes for like two yards, like something very common, very mundane. And I and I always find myself going like, "That's a lot of work, like on every play, for like two yards." Um, in the Christian life, I don't think that that's the way God usually works on every single play. I wish I think I, w- I wish that He did. I think we all wish that God did, but. God doesn't over communicate kind of the way Tony Romo runs a play. Um, he's a lot more mysterious than that. God doesn't talk as often as we wish he would, or speak as clearly as we wish he would, or give us the hand gestures or whatever when we're on the, the wide, you know, we're wide out or whatever. Um, and it, it, it does something really interesting to the, the Christian community. And it means that in the lack of, over communication uh, or intense communication that we can fill in a lot of the blanks on our own. We can fill in a lot of the blanks on our own. There's a lot of room for us to speak for God or to interpret God the way we want to interpret God or to tell other people what God's plans really are because um, there's space and there's room and, and it doesn't kind of at the outset, appear wrong or false or bad. And so we, we, we tend to fill in the blanks for God often. Um, you know, we've always done that. It was the same in Jesus' day as well. And a lot of what Jesus was doing was talking to religious leaders that were filling in a lot of blanks from Scripture about God, but getting it all wrong. Does that make sense? They were using Scripture and God's words at Jesus or toward Jesus, and Jesus is saying, but you're getting it all wrong, okay? Um, one of the, the places that I think we get it the most wrong is in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I've heard this verse a lot. It's one of the most famous verses in the book of Jeremiah, um, possibly even in... in uh, the major prophets, it would be up there certainly in a top 10 list or something like that. But it's, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and, and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. This shows up on Christian Hallmark cards, right? Or, or cross-stitch things or like whatever. And, and basically the idea is, isn't that encouraging? Um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what we take it to mean, right? And I think that we live within this kind of idea that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And we use some of these scriptures to kind of get ourselves really hyped up. By the way, last week was miserable for me. I went home, was watching football, um, was miserable. Talked to Pete on the phone and told Pete I was miserable. And Pete's comment was, well, you just preached on the... The Book of Amos, didn't you? Did you expect to feel good? No, but I like I like feeling good. Feeling good's a, a good thing. Um, so, anyways, I realized like maybe doing a whole series on the Minor Prophets was just a exercise in, in not feeling good about myself. And so, um, since I was already there, I kind of figured I'd really ratchet it up. So you might pick up on that today. Um, so you're welcome i going to just really not feel good about life. Uh, but that's okay. Um, let's read in context what's going on here in Jeremiah, even just this paragraph. So if we start in verse 10, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. Not what we say, but this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah is is the prophet we probably know the most about. We we know the most about his life or kind of circumstances. He was contemporary with Habakkuk, uh, Ezekiel, and they're prophesying when Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, is about to come down and take the southern kingdom. Remember, there's the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And this is now coming, the Babylonians coming, and they're going to take the southern kingdom of Judah uh, away into captivity. And Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet. He was the son of a priest, so not like Amos last week who was a, a shepherd. This is the son of a priest that gets called from a young age, and he's incredibly reluctant, and he has probably the worst life of anyone I've ever read about. And so you read, if you read Jeremiah, it makes you feel so awkward reading Jeremiah because you're like, I mean, you you begin to go like I don't know that I want to hang out with you. You're you're awkward, like you're an awkward dude with an awkward calling, and I just wouldn't want to be around it. Like it's awkward. Jeremiah is awkward, uh, and he has all these weird things that he has to do. He, he buries a linen belt and then digs it up after 30 days. And it's like, you see how unclean this has become, how dirty it's become. That's that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get ruined. And he can't get married. Jeremiah can't get married because you're going to be taken away and and you're not going to be, you know, kind of being married anymore or giving in marriage. And And he can't mourn. He's told like that he can't mourn because pretty soon all these people are going to die and there's not going to be anybody left to mourn for them. And so he has all these kinds of like interesting, depressing, heavy prophecies about the people that are his contemporaries, his friends, his neighbors. It gets so bad at one point that even though they're kind of being besieged by the Babylonians, they take the prophet Jeremiah and they basically make him guilty of treason for speaking against the country, the king. I mean, he's really dissonant, and they throw him into this pit, and he's gonna die there. And then someone eventually pleads for him, and they take him out. But I mean, he has just got this horrible, horrible, difficult, challenging life of telling these people how bad it's gonna be. Like, this is how bad it's gonna be. There's really no hope for you. It's gonna be that bad. And so you read Jeremiah and you're just like I don't know you got to take it in breaks go watch a movie you know cook some popcorn do something else like you you have to take breaks from Jeremiah Jeremiah is is awkward And so we're, we're reading this and when we get into this little passage this little paragraph we start with after Babylon's had its time 70 years Okay, so if you're hearing from Jeremiah or talking to Jeremiah, you're a teenager in your 20s, maybe your 30s or 40s, what does the sound of a 70-year exile sound like to you? Like the Israelites wandered around in in the desert for how many years? 40. This is like almost twice as long as the wandering of the people of Israel in the desert. What does that say to you or your generation when the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to you? He's, he's not giving you a message from God that's exciting. He's not saying to you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's God's a very complicated God who is who is in the middle of disciplining his people? Has a plan that's gonna that might cost you your life, or might feel like it's gonna ruin your life. That's the, that's that's what Jeremiah is saying to these people. Seventy years, it's gonna be seventy years. How do you get excited about anything? When, when the good news comes after 70 years. So when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you, the nation of Israel, my people, and I will fulfill my gracious promise to who? To the nation of Israel. To bring who? The nation of Israel. So the you here is you all. It's not you individually, Sam, Sally, whoever. It's You, my people, the nation of Israel, I will bring you back because I've made this gracious promise to you. And I'm gonna bring you back to this place, to your home. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you, the plans 70 plus years from now. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you um, and not to harm you anymore after that time. Plans to give you hope and to give you a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. In other words, then, after 70 years, when I'm fulfilling my gracious promise, you're gonna, you, you people are going to get it right. You're going to know that you can call upon my name and you're going to come and pray to me, not like you used to do um, when I'm, I'm disciplining you because you were only thinking of yourself No one was looking out for anyone else, and the poor were being trampled, and people were being oppressed, and unlike that time, then when I bring you back here, you're going to call upon me, and I'm going to come to you, and you're going to pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity, I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. It's really interesting. We take this verse when we're speaking for God or kind of filling in the gaps for God to really have this individualistic message of success. It's about you and your success, it's about you and your dreams. It's about you and how God is going to prosper you, and wouldn't you be excited about this? So excited that you're going to cross-stitch it, put it in the bathroom, right, um, so that anyone that's using your bathroom can see how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But, but when we begin to look at this, it's a little bit different. It's not about my success. It's not even about me as an individual. It's about the people of God, this whole kind of nation, God's people, his family, and about Shalom. It's not about success for the one person, it's about shalom for the community of God. That God is working to bring about the right kind of community, the right kind of society, the right kind of family, where the right kind of interactions, the right kind of love of neighbor, the right kind of self sacrificial behavior is going on, that it really shines bright, that the poor are treated in a certain way, that, that people aren't oppressed, that, that if people are oppressed, those in power would work on their behalf to make sure that that doesn't happen or continue, where uh, unjust scales aren't looked on favorably because it's about the shalom of the community, the justice, the righteousness, and that that would flourish and be a light that would glorify God, please God, and demonstrate to other people in the world that that God likes goodness, that God's a communal or relational God, and that his goodness that he likes isn't just for a certain few people, but for all people to enjoy, And that that blessing and that promise is supposed to extend to other nations and and people far away and that they too are supposed to be able to come and draw near to and know this God who wants a certain kind of ethic and goodness to work out for his people um, that would be a light and would lead to to human flourishing. It's, It's this message of goodness, this message of truth, this message of beauty. And God is saying, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to bring you out of discipline, out of exile, and to prosper you, and, and, and to do that in relationship with you as you're now learning to call on me, and I'm going to be heard, uh, I'm going to hear you, and I'm going to move and answer you because you're seeking me with all your heart, and I will be your God, you will be my people, and this is the kind of hope that you can have, that the people of God will flourish. That's the message of Jeremiah, is that in the middle of all of this bad stuff, you, all of you in this room, you're going to die in captivity. All of you. Some of you are going to die at the front end. Some of you are going to die as they're marching you into captivity. Some of you are going to die when you get to Babylon. Some of you are going to die of old age in Babylon. But everyone in this room in the next 70 years is going to die. But but have hope. It's good news because God is a faithful God and his covenant promise to his people, the people of faith, is that even though this is gonna happen, he will not forget his people and he will call back your children and your grandchildren and, and your children and grandchildren will be brought back and will have an opportunity at doing this again again where they get it right and they have love of neighbor kind of at the center of what it means to follow God and God will hear them and will bless them and will prosper them and they will then come to have this righteousness, justice, and shalom and it's gonna be a beautiful thing. So it's a very different message than I think the way we typically take it. And it's not about our success. In fact, oftentimes, our success is threatened when God comes around. That's what the rich young ruler found out, is like, my vision of my life and my dreams for the next five years or ten years, these wonderful goals, like, you don't need God to be successful. You need hard work, a lot of focus, a couple breaks maybe, some good connections, but you don't need God to be successful. And and frankly, you can take some people that already are successful, the rich young ruler, and when Jesus comes near, he begins to be a threat to their success. Not that God is naturally um, antagonistic to success or always antagonistic to success, but that sometimes what God would have for our life or what Jesus would be calling someone to might mean that, that you have a choice between worldly success or or getting what you want or what you've been striving for or what you're planning for or what you desire and submitting to or following God in faith, that that sometimes those two things um, you have to choose or they don't go together. Not that it's always that way. Um, I think sometimes when you choose God, God, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever, right? I wanted to live in a town like Ben my whole life. I grew up on skis. Um, I don't like people much. Um, neither do you, or you'd be in LA, right? So, <laughs> mock me. Um, and so when I went to go to seminary to to, I, I'm, you know, the commitment was there. I'm going to go and study, and then I'm going to become a, a pastor. And I was like, oh, I got a pastor who oh people. Well, where are people? Oh, they're in the big city. And I had this kind of like okay, God, I'll, I'll go to L.A., I'll, I'll plant a church in L.A., I'll stay in L.A., but I hate the smog, I hate traffic, I hate kind of all these things. I'm like, I'm willing to do it on faith. And I had this picture of a station wagon with wood paneling on the sides. Like I had this, like, this. everything was this picture of poverty and not what I wanna do, but okay, God, right? And somehow in that submission, I get to L.A. and I study, God brings me the girl of my dreams, and the girl of my dreams just can't possibly be a pastor's wife in L.A. Um, she needs to be a pastor's wife. This, this isn't her language. I've got to be careful because she, she's, she's in here. Um, she, this perfect wife had a better place where she would be a part of this pastoral team. And that better place was her home area of central Oregon. And so I was like, okay this makes a lot more sense, you know, we'll both be kind of our better selves, so let's look at Central Oregon. I didn't know anything about Bend, I didn't, you know, it was all new to me. Oregon was new to me. And somehow I ended up in Oregon. And, and one day, like, shortly after I got here, I kind of was, it dawned on me that I had somehow now, it's like throwing the, the story of the briar patch, like don't throw me in the briar patch, but strangely, that's actually where I want to be, you know? Like I ended up in Bend and I looked around and I was like, this is what I always dreamed for. But somehow it came to me in, sub, in my submission or faith walk with God. Like God gave you your desires. He wired you the way he wanted to wire you. Like he made you to be like effective in certain areas. It's not that God won't ever use the things that are in your heart as part of his plan. But what I want to tell you is sometimes those come um, when you go way out of your way and come back around. And sometimes when we look at it and go, but this is what I want and, and we're going to choose this rather than choose faith, then God begins to go, oh, this, this is a problem. This has got to go because this is your idol that you're worshiping, that you're serving, and it's gonna ultimately be a barrier to whether or not you're gonna have a relationship with me or be able to walk with me. And faith is a walk, by the way. It's, it's not a belief that God exists. It's a walk of obedience as you follow Christ, okay? So you get this interesting thing going that sometimes, like, following God is, is, is gonna challenge or threaten our idea of success. Um, And sometimes our idea of success is going to force us to not hear what Scripture is really saying, but want to make Scripture serve the ends of kind of what we want it to say or or what we want to believe. This is what's going on, I think, with this Jeremiah verse. If we want to flip over to Lamentations, Lamentations is anonymous, but most people believe that it was written by Jeremiah. And it's basically this big, long, prophetic lament. Now, I want to read you starting in in verse 1 of chapter 3. We're going to get to a famous verse here, and it goes like this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So we get to him, great is thy faithfulness, from this verse. Um, In some translations, it's, uh, his mercies are new every morning. So this, this idea of times of refreshing coming every morning because there's ample grace, ample mercy. And it's this wonderful, it's another one of those verses that you'll see cross-stitched uh, or on the Christian Hallmark cards. <laughs> Not a big fan of the Christian Hallmark cards. If, if you're picking up a little bit of tone, it's because there actually is. Um, but so we're going to get to this verse. Isn't that a beautiful verse, by the way? I just kind of gave it to you. And, you know, great is, great is thy faith. Isn't that beautiful? Is it beautiful? Okay. Have you heard it before? A lot of you probably. Okay. This is where we're going to get. But I want to take you through chapter three on the road to getting here. You ready for that? All right. Here we go. I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, God's wrath, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his head against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, He, God, shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Lying like a bear, uh, like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, He has dragged me from the path and mangled me, and He's left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. If you know the the prophet Jeremiah, as he walks in the city of Jerusalem, literally children who are learning from their parents are singing songs or mocking this prophet, this guy that's obviously kind of the outcast of society. All day long, they mock me in song. I've been, I've been mocked before. I don't know that I've ever been bullied in song. Like it's a new level when you're, you're getting mocked in song. Um, I don't ever wanna have that happen to me. Um, they mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and he sated me with gall. Now this, this verse here gets me more than any of the other ones. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. So you literally picture a person in in like gravel in the old kind of deserts or the dry areas of of Israel. And and you picture somebody like their head being slammed into gravel and, and breaking their teeth. Like, if you're having a competition with a friend about whose life sucks more, and they use language like, broken my teeth with gravel, you kind of step back and go, well played. Well played. Your life sucks. And you win. Like, that, that's, that wins. Um, and this is what's going on here. Uh, he has broken my teeth with gravel, he's trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say that my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord is gone with it. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we, the people of Israel, are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. Um I won't take you there. I think it's like Psalm one thirty four or one forty one. There's one of my favorite Psalms. Um David's basically kind of going through a similar thing and he says, I've learned that the Lord is my portion in the land of the living. That's what Jeremiah is saying here. For the Lord is my portion, meaning the good thing isn't what God gives me or brings me, but the good thing is God. In other words, I don't love God for his blessing. I love God for himself. That's my portion if, if I can claim that I'm going to get anything while I live, it's that I can claim that I will get God. That, that that relationship is something I can hang to. That his character and that someday all of this, the reconciliation of all things for God's people, which includes me, will come about. And in that day, there will be no crying, no tears, that there will there'll be joy. Like, who God is that there is a God, that I have that relationship with God, that I'm numbered and that that God sees me as one of his children, That, that God, that relationship, that intimacy, that's my portion. I get that. I might get nothing else. Might not. I mean, I hope I do, but I might not get anything else. I might be going into 70 years. Or 40 years in the desert. I might be going into a prophetic call where before it ever gets better, it's going to get a whole lot worse and they're going to sing songs to mock me. That, that might be where I'm going. Wherever I'm going, though, I get to claim this, that the Lord is my portion. Um, that David uh, verse, I found that when I had girl problems like before, before God gave me Tamra. And if you've ever had broken relationships or wondering, will God ever provide for me to, to like fill the desires of my heart with relationship? You know what that can feel like. It's just dark or it's heavy, it's, it's this brooding kind of thing, and there's no real light that you see. And if, if you've got a grief or something you're hanging on to, you know what that depression feels like. And that's when I came across that verse in Psalms, and I'm like, we go to God with so much emotion. And I think it's real emotion, and it's authentic emotion, and it's true emotion, but if our worldview says, I'm going to God with all this emotion because he has to provide the the answer to, to what I feel like I need, then I'm somehow reading it wrong. What David taught me in that psalm and what Jeremiah is saying here is that I go with all of this emotion, this real emotion, this authentic emotion that's, that's really sad and it's depressing but I go to God and say, I'm, I'm here laid bare before you and I want the spouse or the child or the job or the health or whatever it is, I really want that and I know it's a good desire. I know you would You would affirm that. You put those desires in me. But God, even if I don't get what I want, you are what I need. You're my portion in the land of the living. If I only have but you, then I've got enough. And I will accept that. And I will trust and I will walk in obedience. And if we get caught up in this idea that God is kind of this, therapeutic guy who exists to give us the things we want or think we need or believe we need, that I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you next week, plans to uh, next year do this for you. Like When we believe that message that we've kind of crafted for ourselves and then we go to God in prayer and the first year we're doing okay. God, I love you, and I know that this is a difficult time, but I trust that you're going to provide and you're going to do these things for me, and, and, and I love that we're having these conversations. Year two, God, are you even listening? Nothing's happened yet. Um, I'm beginning to get frustrated, and um, this is not the way it's supposed to go. But I'm still talking to you. Don't you get that? Like, I'm that kind of person. I'm living by faith. I'm still talking to you. A little upset, a little passive-aggressive. Um, first, I'm, and I, I don't mean to make fun of any of this. This is, this is our, our life experience. This is what I deal with on a day-to-day basis. Year three I don't know that I like going to church and singing worship songs because they anger me because they speak to a God who is trustworthy. I don't know that I believe it anymore. Uh, I've really been angered by a lot of Christians that say cheap things like, oh, you just need to pray about it. And the next Christian that gives me some little pat formula or hands me a Christian book, I'm probably going to slap. And... If I'm really honest, if I go to lunch with you and you ask me and I'm really being honest, I'm going to say, I don't know that I believe anymore or I, I'm, I'm really dealing with some anger with God. Year four, year five, like the energy to sustain when we think that the the end result is that God will always give us what we want. It's like the child that goes to mom and dad and continues to ask and knows that sometime they're going to relent. Now, the interesting thing is that, that Jesus talks about verses like, go to God with expectancy and like the judge that gets kind of asked a lot, you never know God might relent. But the point he's saying is, God loves you and God cares, so keep going to him. But he's not saying go to God as a means to the end of getting what you want. And if that doesn't happen, then somehow God has failed or is broken or doesn't exist. You go to God and go, God, you are enough. You are my portion in the land of the living. I know you love me. I I know you care about these things. I know you see these things. This is a significant thing. It's real and it's raw. And I pray that you would move there. But even if you don't, please just I need you. I need to know that you're with me. I need to know that you haven't left me. I need to know that there's something I can look forward to, even if I'm never going to see it, but that all of this is going to be reconciled at some point, that there really is the reconciliation of all things. It really will be shalom. And if your presence is here loving me, then I can bank on that. I can trust it, even if I'm not going to see it in the land of the living. Like, I can't lose that, God. God. If I lose you, I, I, don't know, I don't know where I would turn then. And so there's a, there's a subtle nuance that comes out with what it is we're really seeing and kind of anchoring into. Uh, if you look at the, the arc, uh, let's just use science. So theories in science are basically these buckets or paradigms that data then gets interpreted within. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so when things are happening, you're in, interpreting it in light of this worldview, this paradigm, or this theory. Uh, and, and if like, enough things are kind of outside of that theory, then the theory goes into crisis and then eventually changes, right? Um, the same is true of story, that we interpret things in terms of our understanding of the narrative arc. Okay, the narrative arc. What we would call the meta-narrative So the worldview or the paradigm or the meta-narrative that we grab hold of as as the Christian story, what it is we can trust as people of faith, is incredibly important because it's it's going to dictate to us what we're expecting, what we're thinking is going to happen next, how we interpret data, and ultimately, if we have this paradigm of prosperity or that it's about me and my success, then when things don't go right, it throws that, that worldview, that paradigm into crisis, and, and either that paradigm changes, or I walk away from this story. Does that make sense? Have you ever known somebody that's walked away from the story? That story has failed me. And I would say, that's exactly right. The story failed you. I don't know that God failed you. I, I really, I don't know who I'm talking about right now. They're like a mystery somebody. So I, I don't know any, like if, like if God failed you, but I can tell that the story failed you, that you were raised in a culture where the church or the religious leaders or whoever it was led you to believe that, that it all existed for you and your happiness or success. And you were willing to undergo some trials here and there uh, as a means to the end of the prosperity that you were sure was going to come, but then when it delayed and delayed and delayed, and you began to go, maybe it's never coming, or it doesn't look like it might, or certain, certainly not the way that I thought it would, then all of a sudden you're like, I don't trust this anymore. And what what happened was you had a faulty theory, a faulty worldview, a faulty meta narrative at the beginning. It's important the story we tell. It's important the story that we raise our kids up into. It's important the story that we reinforce with each other. It's important what it is that we take as the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ that we get to hope in and that we somehow don't make it flipped so that instead of being about shalom for God's people, sometimes in the future, that it's about my prosperity for me today. Does that make sense? I, get, I got one person. One, I got one person out of all that. Dang it. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So I'm gonna ask you this question this morning. What story are you listening to? What are you gonna crochet or... Cross stitch and put on your wall? Is it going to reinforce the meta narrative that's the biblical story? Or is it going to reinforce bad ideas about it all being about me? Everywhere you go, everywhere you are, you're hearing a story. And I believe that God has promised us this that when we're on our way up and we're achieving success, that God will be with us if we use that success with an idea of love of neighbor and not just for our own selves. When things are bad and we've got nothing left, I believe the promise is I will be there. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will go with you. When things are hard, I believe God says we can do this. I will give you strength. Um... The thorn in the flesh, when when Paul's dealing with these difficult things, he says, the Lord taught me my grace is sufficient for you. So in the middle of the challenge or the difficulty, going and realizing there really is mercy, there really is faithfulness from God, I can make it from day to day. Even if it's not the way I want it to look, I still can make it. God is my portion in the land of living. What I don't see in Scripture is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If that's interpreted as it's about you and it's about your success rather than about God's people, his family, his whole family, and the shalom, goodness, justice that's going to exist. Jesus quoted um, a lot of these books that we're we're in. Um, If you want to know what he quoted the most, he quoted the book of Psalms more than any other book. Number two was Deuteronomy. Number three was Isaiah, another one of the major prophets. Number four, Exodus. And uh, all, he quoted from 24 of the Old Testament books. And he was quoting from these Old Testament books to say, don't you see how God who cares about his people in the shalom or the peace, that peace is going to come to God's people Um, That God's righteousness is truly gonna come and bring about what he promised for his people. Don't you see that those promises are slowly being fulfilled and now I stand here in fulfillment of that bringing this message of peace and righteousness to you, embodying that message and then even pointing forward so that this is still yet to, to come with my second coming when, when the second half of my work of establishing peace is going to be made um, kind of final or good or effective. And so now we stand in the, the already but not yet tension, just like people back here in Israel stood in this already but not yet tension um, or the people in Jesus' day. And so we begin to find that when we, we read the prophets, we are, are able to put ourselves in the position of the nation nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel always stands as a metaphor for the Christian life. That you're taken out of um, Egypt where you're a slave and you're led through the desert and into, kind of after the the trials and the struggles, into ultimately the promised land. And that pictures the life of, of, of faith from slavery into walking with God and then ultimately into the promised land or with the prophets where we're talking about the people of God and the messiness of life and the fact that there's gonna be exile but after exile, in exile, you, you still have God and after exile, things are coming back to this position of shalom. It's the same message of, of going from where you're starting, journeying with God through the mess with the hope that someday there will be the reconciliation of all things. And so whether we're talking about the Israelites in the desert, whether we're talking about the Israelites in exile, we get to see or picture our own life of faith as I can, or, or if I look at my daughters, my daughter Mary Joy, that somehow her life is being lived in this tension of where she's coming from as she's journeying in faith with God, and that somehow in that midst, she's looking to hold on to the hope that God who promised this goodness and shalom, not just for her, but for all will come, uh, will come and bring about what he promised he would do. This is our, this is our story. This is our meta narrative. This is our journey. And when we understand that story and, and we've got that umbrella that we're living under and, and kind of into, and I get suffering in my life, um, I now know where to locate it. I locate it here. Well, Uh, Jesus promised that I would have suffering. He told me in this world there will be trials and tribulations. And so you know what? Um, This doesn't surprise me. And not only that, but Paul shows me an example of using, and Peter, of using your trials and that somehow your trials allow you to share in the suffering that Jesus went through That points us not to success or prosperity now, but points us to a different kind of hope or life of faith. And so I'm not thrown off by this suffering. I I even know how to take and use it as part of my spiritual walk, and it doesn't affect my story at all. It just just allows me an opportunity to grow or deepen my faith as I mature and become more Christ-like. If my, my meta-narrative, however, the umbrella under which I'm living, or what I'm living up into, is one that says God exists to eventually bring me the prosperity or the success that I want, and then all of a sudden, when everything looks like it's going well, I get, I get sideswiped. And it all falls apart, and my dreams are dashed. I then take that piece of data and I look at my meta narrative or my worldview, and I don't have a place to put that. God has now failed me. Whether God is loving or not, or even knows my name, is now called into question. The theory is in crisis, and I begin. And I begin. I take this experience that's so visceral, and I begin to journey somewhere to find a different theory that can make sense of my my suffering or my struggle. And either I replace a bad Christian worldview with a better one or I leave my bad Christian worldview altogether and I go find something in the world that might offer me a little bit of help or a little bit of comfort to deal with this thing that doesn't fit in the Christianity that I used to have or kind of live into. The story we tell is incredibly important. When we read Jeremiah, yes, we can look at those verses That God loves his people and he knows the plans he has for his people. Yes, we can read those verses that God is faithful and that his mercies, his compassion never fails and, and it's new every morning. Yes, we can read those and we can draw a lot of comfort from those. But we have to do that within a meta narrative, or a worldview or kind of a picture of reality that's accurate with what comes before and after those wonderful, beautiful verses of hope. Does that make sense? So this morning, I'll just read you what I wrote. It's easier that way. When you're looking for your best life now, um, sometimes you can put words in God's mouth. When we're looking for our best life now, we might not see the power in God's story of redemption, big picture, because we're looking for success right down here. When we're looking for our best life now, I don't think we necessarily become a people of faith. I think instead the danger is we become a people of formulas, fixes, and as the prophets show us, a people that's not faithful to their God, we become a people of infidelity. And I think the prophets are a strong, stark, Break your teeth with gravel, kind of message. But I think they're a beautiful way for us to recenter ourselves, see the North Star once again, and in the middle of kind of God's mystery and in in the middle of the messiness of life, to be able to grab hold of faith and walk forward into a true story that that actually is good news and that we can put our hope in. Um, It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not the easy news. Jesus didn't come to give us the easy news. Um, but it's good news. And it's what we put our hope in. So let's close in prayer. Father, whatever I said that wasn't nuanced right or might have even been wrong, I just pray that you dismiss and somehow allow something to, to grab hold of us here, the truth about who you are. Uh, a day is like a thousand years for you You see all of it at once, not just my story. So you are incredibly big picture on the one hand and working towards ultimate ends and ultimate goals. Yet on the other hand, you're incredibly intimate. You do know the number of hairs on my head. You do know my name. You are the shepherd that cares about all the sheep. So somehow may I understand that your ways are bigger than my ways without losing the sight of the fact that you love me, that you know me and love me. And as Katie sang about, you love me even in the messiness of my life when I can't always get it right. So thank you for your grace. Uh, Thank you for being with us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name.